We're in the book of 1 Peter, and we are coming near the very end of the book of 1 Peter. We have two uh, sermons left. And uh, if you'll remember, I shared with you at the very beginning, I believe it was the first sermon on 1 Peter back in the beginning of September, a story about how I had gone. I was in a very challenging situation. I had to make a very difficult decision. And so I went to someone who had decades of experience who could help me with that decision, who would be able to provide me uh, good counsel and, um, and advice. Sorry. Good counsel and advice. And how I drove for several hours, right? And I met with this person and they talked me through the problem. They helped me understand the things that I needed to understand. And I compare that person to Peter, right? Because Peter is someone who's had a lot of experience with suffering. He's had a lot of experience of walking with Jesus Christ. And so he's able to speak with credibility to the issues that we've seen in this letter. He's able to speak about suffering because he suffered. He's able to speak about staying faithful because there were times when he didn't stay faithful. And so he's this trustworthy guide for us. We are now at the end of that counseling session. So I want you to imagine for a minute that you are in a difficult situation in your life, and you go to who can help you, someone who has experience or skill. And maybe that person is able to connect with you, and they can understand your struggle in a way that makes you feel less alone. Maybe they're able to give you some good counsel and advice that you're able to walk away with. But at some point, wherever you're meeting, whether it's at their home, whether it's at a coffee shop, you have to get up and go back and face the world. Maybe you're in a challenging relationship and you feel connected for the first time in a long time with this person and they're able to empathize with you and they're able to give you good advice and you have hope and courage that you didn't have before. But at some point, you still have to go back into the situation. I was with someone recently who was giving me advice, and as we walked out of the restaurant, they said, providentially speaking, Matthew, good luck. Peter is giving us his last word, his last word of advice before this letter ends. These recipients in Asia Minor in the first century who are receiving this letter have probably had received great encouragement and hope, and they still live in Asia Minor. And so Peter here is going to give them his his last word, his last practical instruction, what is it they need to know as they walk out the door? That's where we're going to be uh, this Sunday um, and next Sunday. He's given them encouragement and instruction, and now they have to go live. By the way, that's, that's sort of what we do every Sunday. I have a friend who compares the church to a heart, and the people are like the blood, and the heart would be our worship. We're pulled in to worship all together. And then every week we're sent out again back into the world. And so we're pulled in, prepared, and equipped. We hear from God and his word. We receive instruction and encouragement for the situations and challenges that we face in this life. And then over and over again, we're pushed back out to apply that in the places where we live and work with our family and our friends, whether they know Jesus or they don't know Jesus. These people are being pushed out back into the world. And so Peter's giving them his last word, practical advice. By the way, we preach through the Bible just passage by passage, and it comes every once in a while that it's, time, not, it's always timely in a certain sense, but there, there comes moments when it's especially timely to what's happening in our world. 
And it just happens that this week we're in a passage about anxiety. Peter tells them to cast all their anxieties on God. And so there's, it's with that uh, that we come to this portion of Scripture nearing the end where we're receiving Peter's last words to these people in this letter. We're going to start at verse 6 in chapter 5. So I invite you to go there in your worship guide or in your phone, or it's also printed. Excuse me, your worship guide, it's printed, your phone, or also in your Bible. And remember, as we come to this uh, portion of God's Word, that God tells us that His Word is more precious than gold, even the finest gold. And it's sweeter than honey, even honey that comes straight from the honeycomb. And so it's for that reason that we read now, starting at verse 6. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. Be sober-minded. Be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. I invite you to pray with me as we come to this portion of God's word. Our Father in heaven, we thank you that you know our troubled hearts and our anxious thoughts. And you haven't left us alone with them, but you've given us each other, and even more importantly, you've given us yourself and your word. And so we ask simply that you would send your spirit again this Sunday to help us, that we would be able to hear and understand and believe everything that you've written for us, and that it would give us hope encourage in this world that even as we don't know everything now and we don't know how our stories will end we know that you're with us so we ask that you remind us of that again this morning we ask these things not because we have earned them but because jesus has and so we ask them in his mighty name amen we uh, start this passage in verse six with another mention of humility Humility was how we ended the previous passage, and yet there seems to be probably two aspects of humility. Last week, it was clothing yourselves with humility, verse 5, towards one another. So this was this idea of working together, knowing that we don't have all the answers. We're not necessarily the smartest person in the room. There are blind spots that we have, right? And so there's this clothing that happens where we're working together in a humble and tender way. Peter now tells us to have humility again, but this time not humility towards one another, but humility towards God. And so there seems to be a different type of humility, a different aspect of humility going on here. You'll see in verse 6, it says, Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God. There's humility in working with other people. That's last week. And this week, there's humility in trusting God. In other words, this is the kind of humility that accepts suffering because they trust God. This is the kind of humility that recognizes we don't know exactly why this is happening, but we're willing to remain faithful in it because we know that God is good. It's trusting God enough to accept and receive suffering and remain faithful in it. There is an element to humility that involves recognizing we don't know everything. 
When it's humility with other people, we're recognizing that they know something we don't know, perhaps. Humility with God is recognizing that he definitely knows things that we don't know. And sometimes he chooses not to share those things with us. And so when we're in suffering, there's an element of humility in trusting God and recognizing that he knows what we don't know. God knows it and we trust him. I'm going to tell you as we end the book of 1 Peter, one more uh, Corey Ten Boom story. I apologize, but I'm not sorry. There was a moment in Corey's childhood, there were many moments in her childhood that she tells that prepared her for suffering and to be able to face the things that she would face later in her life. And one story that she tells was of the time that she was with her father and she would have this special time with her dad on a regular basis riding with him on the train. And when they were on the train together, she would be able to ask him whatever question she had on her mind, as a, as a child does with a parent that they have a, a healthy relationship with. And there came a point when she began to ask her father some questions about things that he determined she wasn't old enough to know about. And he wanted to protect her until she was strong enough and old enough to be able to handle the kind of information that she was asking about. And so as she began to ask these questions, he, instead of answering, he said, daughter, what I want you to do is I want you to go, so you see my suitcase over there? I want, you to, I want you to be the one to pick it up and carry it off the train when we leave today. And so Corey goes over to the, as a young child, as a young girl, she goes over to the suitcase and tries to pick it up. And she turns to her father and says, I, I can't, I can't pick this up, it's too heavy. Yes, he said, and it would be a pretty poor father who would ask his little girl to carry such a load. It's the same way, Corey, with knowledge. Some knowledge is too heavy for children. When you are older and stronger, you can bear it. For now you must trust me to carry it for you. And I was satisfied, more than satisfied, wonderfully at peace. They were answers to this and all my hard questions, for now I was content to leave them in my Father's keeping. The point is this. There are things going on right now in your life and my life that I don't understand. And there are things going on right now, I don't know how they're going to end but I know that God does. And I have to trust him as a good and loving father to be willing to carry it for me. And so I have to humble myself under his mighty hand that as heavy as it is, God will carry it. And so we can trust him and have hope and confidence we can be, as Corey said, wonderfully at peace because our Father in heaven has not left us alone. Peter tells us to humble ourselves, and then he tells us why and how. The why is under the mighty hand of God. Why can we trust him? Why did Corey trust her father? Well, he was strong enough to lift the suitcase. and He was the one who was able to take it off the train for them. We don't trust God because he's some grandfatherly figure, 
but instead because he has a mighty hand. Now, this might sound like just a nice phrase, but in fact, this phrase, the mighty hand of God, appears only this once in the New Testament. And it's something that appears all the time in the Old Testament, especially in the books of Exodus and Deuteronomy. It is a rich Old Testament image, this idea of the mighty hand. And almost always, when it's used, it's connected to one thing. We read it, by the way, this morning. It's not a coincidence, the passages that we read for our Old Testament reading. And if you'll go with me to page 4, you'll see it near the top. Verse 20, God's talking about his people in Egypt. So I will stretch out my hand. Verse 19, I know that the king of Egypt will not let you go unless compelled by a mighty hand. In other words, a mighty hand is Peter's code for God's power in delivering his people out of slavery in Egypt. Now, this is not the first time we've seen something like this in the book or in the letter. Remember, we had the comparison to Noah. God rescued Noah when he was suffering. God will rescue you. Now, the same, same sort of connection is being made, not to Noah, but to the people of Israel in Egypt in slavery. God, by his mighty hand, rescued his people from slavery in Egypt. God is still that powerful. He will rescue you. In fact, this image is intensified. Noah waited for decades as a man and a family. Israel waited for centuries. Suffering and wondering where God was. And yet God had not abandoned them. He hadn't left them alone. And so just like Israel, for centuries, trusted God, trusted his mighty hand, and knew that he would deliver them. So these people who are receiving the letter from Peter should trust God as well, even more. Because while the exodus, God's deliverance of his people from Egypt, was the great act of redemption that was looked to over and over again in the Old Testament... God's great acts of redemption in the New Testament was even more powerful. It was bringing his people not out of literal slavery in Egypt, but from the actual spiritual bondage of slavery to sin, not by bringing them through water, but by sacrificing his own son. And so as in the Old Testament, God's mighty hand was repeated over and over and over to remind them of God's faithfulness and his love and even more important, his power, his ability to deliver. So his ability to deliver is still there with them now. And so they trust God in suffering because he is powerful. God is not just with them but he's with them in power. He doesn't just know, but he's able to act. Noah waited for decades. God's people in Egypt waited for centuries. And we wait now for millennia for Jesus to return. He is not any less powerful. And so we trust him, we humble ourselves under the mighty hand of God. Finally, we see the trajectory here in verse 6 that we've seen over and over, this connection between suffering and glory, that at the proper time, he may exalt you. Jesus suffered, we suffered. Jesus was glorified, we will be glorified. It's the same theme over and over. We are connected to Jesus. Jesus' story is our story. 
Jesus remained faithful in suffering. You may remain faithful in suffering. Jesus is with the Father. You will also be with the Father. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, that at the proper time he may exalt you. Mighty hand of God, then, is the why. Now we get to the how. We're trusting God in suffering. We're trusting him because he's powerful. How do we trust him in that suffering? Verse 7, casting all our anxieties on him because he cares for you. God is not just powerful. He's also good. He's not just some distant and powerful figure, but he's a God who's near and is close and is with us and cares for us. And so we cast all our anxieties on him. In other words, we can have humility and peace, or we can have pride and anxiety. We can have humility and peace, or we can have pride and anxiety, but we can't have pride and peace at the same time, yes. It's a wonderful quote that captures this by a man named Tim Keller. He says, it takes pride to be anxious, wise enough to know how my life should go. It takes pride to be anxious. I am not wise enough to know how my life should, should go. In other words, we humble ourselves under the mighty hand of God. There are things that we are walking through right now that we don't understand, and we don't know how they're going to end. But God does, and he's powerful and he cares for us, so we trust him. And we cast our anxieties on him. We cast our anxieties on him through prayer. We learn in Philippians chapter 4. We cast our anxieties on him as we renew our minds, understanding his power. We cast our anxiety on him as we share it with other believers who can point us to faith and hope in Christ. But we have to cast them on him. We have to let God be the one who carries the suitcase and have a powerful sense of peace from knowing that. As Peter ends these final instructions, he's told us essentially in verses 6 and 7 that we have an advocate. God is with us. He hasn't left us alone. But as he's warning them and giving them their final instructions, he reminds them they don't just have an advocate, they also have an adversary. And so it's not enough for them to cast their anxieties on God. Also, verse 8, they need to be sober-minded and watchful. You may have an advocate, and you're also at war. Last week I mentioned this, the fact that the church is a battlefield, and there's a special sense in which leaders in the church enter into that battle. But all of us, if we're Christians, are in a spiritual battle. Now, God has won the victory for us through Christ. But that doesn't mean there aren't real threats that we face in this world. You have an advocate, but you are at war. There is a real spiritual battle going on. Remember last week I told you the story about David Hackworth and how part of the reason he was so angry was that these men that were being trained were not prepared for the battle that were ahead, was ahead of them. He tells another story as he was in, I believe, the Korean War about how there was a man who asked him, hey, what's this that I'm playing with over, over here? 
And he said, that's an uh, anti-tank mine. You're going to not want to touch that. He turned away, and a few seconds later, as the man continued to play with it, he, it blew him up. There is a real war. There is real spiritual danger, and it is necessary for us to be sober-minded, as Peter tells us here, aware, being watchful, that there's a real tempter and a real temptation. Now, most likely for these people receiving this letter, part of the temptation that Peter's talking about, as we're talking about type three suffering, suffering for the name of Christ, is the temptation to turn away from Christ. But it could be all sorts of other temptations as well. Remember, we talked about the fact that they need to turn away from what he calls the passions of the flesh. They could be tempted to return to old sin patterns in the midst of their anxiety and fear. By the way, the same is true for us. If, if we're in a time of isolation, that's going to be especially challenging for those of us who struggle with various addictions. And so part of their fight against anxiety is knowing that they're in a war. The devil is like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. And so they need to, verse 9, resist him. We face real enemies in this world. We face the sin we face the, the enemy of the flesh and the enemy of the devil. And so we have to be on, on guard in our own behavior. Are we putting ourselves in places where we might be compromised, where we might be tempted to sin? Are we relying on God's grace in the wrong way, thinking, well, God has saved me, so I don't need to worry about my behavior. I don't need to worry about places that might put me in temptation. Instead, Peter warns them that they're in a battle and that the devil is out to get them. And so they need to stand firm. And then he gives them an encouragement. The same kinds of suffering are being experienced by their brotherhood throughout the world. In other words, as I remind you from time to time when we do our confession of faith, we join with the church throughout the world and throughout time. And we don't suffer anything that they haven't suffered. When we're persecuted, they've been persecuted. Some of them are being persecuted. When we suffer tragedies in our community and the world, they've also suffered tragedies in communities. There's an encouragement from knowing that there are other people who are with us. They didn't turn away from Christ. We don't turn away from Christ. They weren't pulled back into the practices and commitments of the world. We are not pulled back into the practices and commitments of the world. And yet, we're also reminded that there's real spiritual darkness and evil powers behind what happens in, uh, on this earth. And so we have Jesus with us and his mighty and powerful hand. But we also have real and present danger. And so we arm ourselves against it, living not flippantly, but with care and consideration, knowing that the temptation to abandon Jesus Christ is there and the temptation to return to the commitments of this world is there. Don't assume that because you're a Christian, because you're a pastor, because you're an elder, because you're a Bible teacher, because you've followed God for a long time, that you are immune to the schemes of the devil. He is no less a threat. And so we trust God. We're also sober-minded. By the way, I bring this up from time to time. Peter faltered, right? The devil was walking around like a roaring lion, and he found Peter. Found Peter full of fear. 
on the night that Jesus was betrayed. Peter faltered. Why did Peter not fail? Do you remember what Jesus told Peter before he betrayed him? In Luke chapter 22, he says this, Simon, Simon, which is a reference to Peter. Peter's full name is Simon Peter. Behold, Satan demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat. But I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. Peter said to him, Lord, I am ready to go with you both to prison and to death. Jesus said, I tell you, Peter, the rooster will not crow this day until you deny three times that you know me. Why did Peter falter but not fail? Because Jesus prayed for him. He did not just have an adversary, he also had an advocate. And when he was restored, remember what Jesus says here, and when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. What is Peter doing now? In this letter, he is strengthening his brothers. Peter faltered, but he didn't fail. Peter was not on watch that night, but Jesus prayed for him. The same is true for us if we're in Christ. Jesus has prayed for us. Satan has demanded to have us that he might sift us like wheat. But we have the mighty hand of God. And so we need not fear. Instead, we continue to be sober-minded and watchful. We can face our adversary because we have an advocate. Jesus prayed for Peter, and he holds us. So we're alert and sober-minded. Finally, verse 10 and 11. And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ... Again, the same theme, glory is what waits you. Will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. What happened to Peter when he betrayed Christ? He was restored, confirmed, strengthened, and established. Finally, verse 11, to him be the dominion forever and ever. Peter there in verse 11 is making a subversive political statement. This word of dominion is what was used to talk about the Roman Empire and the emperor. But instead, he uses it to talk about the Lord Jesus Christ. Who is the one with the true mighty hand? Not the Romans. Who is the one with true dominion? Not the Romans. Jesus Christ. That's why you can humble yourselves under his mighty hand, so that at the proper time he may exalt you. In Christmas of 1939, it was near the beginning of World War II, and King George VI gave a radio address. And in that address, he quoted a poem by a woman named Minnie Louise Haskins, who had been a missionary to India. And while she was a missionary, she wrote a poem that's now known, I believe, as the Gate of the Year. The Gate of the Year, a reference to a new calendar year starting. So she wrote this, this poem about her fears 
in times of distress. And of course, it's quoted in times of distress, right? World War II has just started. And in the poem, there's this idea that she's coming to a man who guards the beginning of the next calendar year. And so she makes this request. I said to the man who stood at the gate of the year, give me a light that I may tread safely into the unknown. So she's walking into this darkness. She wants a light so she can see what's ahead of her. And he replied, go out into the darkness and put your hand into the hand of God. That will be better to you than a light and safer than a known way. Better than a light and safer than a known way. Many was probably drawing from Isaiah chapter 41, verse 13, which says this, For I, the Lord your God, hold your right hand. It is I who say to you, fear not, I am the one who helps you. And so God has a powerful hand, a mighty hand, and he also holds our hand. God has a mighty hand, and he holds our hand. And so what do we do with our fear and anxiety? How do we walk in this world as we leave this letter? We do it not understanding everything that's happening. We do it not knowing how our story and the story of this city is going to end. But we do it knowing that God protects us with his mighty hand. And he holds us with his right hand. And that is better than a light. And it's safer than a known way. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you that you give us tremendous encouragement and hope from your word. And we thank you that a relationship with you is better than knowing or understanding everything that's happening now and will happen. And so we ask that you'd send your spirit to comfort our hearts now, that you'd be with us, you'd protect us and you'd guide us, and you'd help us to know that you are with us and nothing that can happen can cause us to lose your love because you will not lose us. You have a mighty hand and you hold us with your hand. And so we ask these things in Jesus' name, amen.